A recent UN population report says that right now, 53% of the world lives in cities. 53%. By 2050, assuming current trends continue, over 70% of the world will live in cities. That's incredible. Now, when people hear this, they have a variety of reactions. Some people love the city. I love the city. Some people just don't. So when they hear about the world becoming more and more urbanized, they're thinking, whoa, this is not good. I want to give you some reasons why I think it's a good thing that the world has become more urbanized. Think about what the city is. Think about what the city of Worcester does. When people need a job, where do they go to find a job? More and more, the jobs are in the cities. So cities are places that, that stimulate commerce and, and create jobs and allow people to find work. And everybody needs work. Cities are the place where people go when they need help. When they're struggling, when they need medical care or they need social services. Cities are where people can find, generally speaking, public sewers and clean water and all that kind of stuff. So unless you're in Flint, Michigan, generally you're okay. <laughs> you know, I said this in the first service as well, and after I said, you know, that's actually not that funny. It's, it's a tragedy. But part of the reason it's a tragedy is because we expect better, because cities usually provide better, at least cities in our part of the world. And they ought to expect better, Right? Cities are where the world comes together, where the various peoples of the world come together. In the city of Worcester right now, there are foreign-born residents from 85 different countries. In the public school system, over 90 languages and dialects are spoken. It means we're learning from one another. We're, we're seeing some of the majesty and the creativity of God in his play before us in the people that God has brought to this place. They come with different perspectives, different, different understandings, different expressions of, of God's glory and goodness. We see more of God when we see more of God's creation and the people that he has made. That's a good thing. But regardless of whether you think that the city is a good thing or a bad thing, there are two things you need to really get. The first thing is that it's inescapable. By 2050, over 70% of the world will live in cities. You know what that means? Most of the people in this room right now will be alive in 2050. That's only 34 years from now. We're going to see the world become increasingly urbanized. It's inescapable. The second thing is, even though I think that the city is a good thing, Every city that I know of, every city is really being challenged right now. They're being stretched and stressed because how do you provide for so many people coming together so fast? The urbanization is happening so fast now. My daughter spent the last four summers in China. There are cities that a year ago weren't there, and you come back a year later and there's five million people living in them. That kind of stuff's happening around the globe. Even cities in the U.S. are growing, and they're being stressed and challenged. And I would say there's a huge challenge and a huge opportunity for the church to play its role in meeting those challenges. 
We've got huge opportunities in front of us to do good in the world that God is bringing to us and putting us in the midst of. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks that cities are a good thing. God thinks the cities are a good thing. We tend to read the Bible often as like a rural book. We read it from our kind of rural individual perspective, but actually the Bible is pretty urban. In the Bible, there are 1,250 references to city or cities. 142 different cities are, are referenced in the Bible, mentioned in the Bible. A lot of the cities that we t- think about, a lot of, a lot of where biblical, the big biblical characters, if you will, they, they maneuvered, they lived, they worshipped, they followed God in, in urban contexts. The Bible is an urban book, has a lot to say about the city. Part of what the Bible says about cities is that God created cities as a place, created cities as a place of refuge. You look at uh, what you know, let numbers in the book of Joshua, when people would get in trouble and they were fearing for their lives, God established cities of refuge where they can go and be made safe. You read the, about the things like the rape legislation in Deuteronomy. Woman, what, what, what Deuteronomy is telling us in those passages is that cities were seen as the place where, that were safe, where they, where they could be protected. We also see in the Bible that cities were centers of worship both worship of God and worship of idols. They were centers of worship. Something about people would come together and they would, and, uh, they would gather around central worship areas, whether it was a ziggurat or the temple. Maybe part of that this idea of cities as places of worship where people came to worship comes from a kind of a long memory from the Garden of Eden. I'm not sure. But human beings were made to worship in cities where human beings went to worship. It has been through historically for all of humankind. In the New Testament, cities were also hubs for the spread of the gospel. The Apostle Paul based his missionary strategy on reaching cities because he knew that if he reached cities, the, the gospel would, you know, because of people going in and out of cities, moving in and out of cities, commerce going in and out of cities, that the gospel, that the, the gospel would be heard and it would be spread. Cities were part of his mission strategy. Uh, it may be that Jesus came when he came to earth because God was developing, preparing cities to receive his message. What happened with the growth and the development of Rome? Law, order, good roads, communication systems, all of that made it possible for the gospel to spread rapidly. The major cities 
in the Bible, the major churches in the Bible <clears throat> were urban churches. For the first few centuries of the church, the major cities were urban churches. In fact, one might argue they were the first thousand years they were urban churches. Cities are places where culture is transmitted. They're places where culture is transmitted, where ideas are heard, ideas developed, culture is transmitted. So let me read a passage from Revelation 18. Passages, so what, part of what's going on in the book of Revelation is you, you see a, two cities in conflict. You see the Babylon and you see Jerusalem. The two, and I'll get, I'll get back to this later. But here's a description of Babylon. It's talking about the destruction of Babylon, but in the context of that, within that it says, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. So what, what, what's being said here is that Babylon was where Culture was created to its highest level. When you read about the city of Babylon, its architecture, its, its, its art, its language developed, all, it was a place where culture was developed at a high level and spread all around it. People, nations came to Babylon to see and to gawk and to marvel, and they were shaped and changed by what they saw in Babylon. And some of it was good, and a lot of it wasn't. Cities, though, are a place where culture is transmitted. So even if you don't live in a city anymore, the city's so urbanized, that the world the globe is so urbanized that, you know, I, I, I've been in what I would think of as remote places. I've been in West Africa. I've been parts of Latin America. I've been in, I've been in Bolivia and Ecuador. They're affected by a global urban culture. It's amazing. Transmitters of culture. I would say, um, let, me make, let me say another thing. I think that the city is God's ultimate intent for his people. When you read, when you go to the book of Genesis and read the first two chapters of Genesis, you get a sense that God creates the world, Right? And he kind of orders the world and then he puts human beings in, his, in, in the Garden of Eden, right? And he describes what the Garden of Eden is like. It's a place where there's a tree of life, there's a river of life, there are beautiful stones, they have, human beings have everything there that, uh, that they need in order to flourish. It's a good place. You get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and, and it says, And behold, I saw a city 
coming out of the heavens, a new Jerusalem. And it describes a new Jerusalem. And it says what's there. What's in the new Jerusalem? What's, what you see there is it. There's no sin and death. No sin and death in the Garden of Eden either. In both places, God and humankind are together and there's unhindered access to their, in their humankind, human beings have no barriers to their access to God. They can see God face to face. They can talk to God face to face. There's a deep, profound intimacy they have. No, nothing broken in their relationship. That's what it's like in the Garden of Eden where God was used to walking in a garden with Adam and Eve. And it's going to be like that in the New Jerusalem. Garden of Eden, New Jerusalem, there's a tree of life and there's a river of life. Garden of Eden talks about the, the, the kinds of precious stones, beautiful kinds of stones that were there, and then they show up again in the New Jerusalem. I think what God is saying to us through this is that what God intended the Garden of Eden to become, to, to become was the New Jerusalem. That when God called Adam and Eve and put them in the put Adam first and Eve in this garden told me fruitful and multiply to till the earth and to keep it and to exercise dominion that the end result of that was supposed to be the new Jerusalem and despite the fact that human beings fell and brought destruction and disorder and chaos and brokenness and pain and evil into the world what God intended in the beginning is what God is going to do at the end. And it's going to be good. Now, if you pay attention to some of the language of Revelation 21, 22, it talks about what this new, you know, it lays out the dimensions of the new Jerusalem. And I hadn't really thought about that very much until I reread the passage this week. But it says that the new Jerusalem will cover 14,000 stadia, which in our units of measurement would be, uh, I'm sorry, it would be 12,000 stadia. In our units of measurement, it would be 1,400 miles. You know what 1,400 miles is? It's the distance from Boston to Miami. There's going to be a city that's as big as the, as the distance from Boston to Miami. It's going to be, in the words of Donald Trump, huge. <laughs> huge. It's going to be big. All of us are going to have an urban future for eternity. Our eternity is urban, is what this is saying. Now, this new Jerusalem is going to be very good. But it's not the, what the city is like right now. It's not the way the world is right now in all of, all of the world. The world, the earth, human beings were fallen. Cities are fallen. 
when the first man and the first woman disobeyed God and sin entered the world, something broke. And all of creation suffered that brokenness. All of creation, not just human beings. What's important to hold on to is in the midst of that, God didn't stop his activity. He didn't turn his back on his creation. The world has not been destroyed. Now, in relation to to the topic of the city, you see the first city mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. You, you, you all, most of you know that Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin enters the world. Uh, Adam and Eve give birth. They have sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother, Abel. Blood is shed for the first time on the earth. And when that happens, he has this dialogue with God and um, God just says, I'm not going to kill you. God puts a mark on his head to protect, keep him protected. What does Cain do? Verses 17 to 22 of chapter 4 talk about Cain building a city. Why does he build a city? He builds a city kind of as a replacement for Eden. Humankind has been... Uh, Exiled from Eden, so Cain builds his own, quote-unquote, Eden, his own version of Eden. He does it as a way to shake his fist at God and say, I don't need you anyway. It's a, it's a, the, the first city is an expression of pride and arrogance and resentment and rebellion against God. But it's also a place where animal husbandry starts to develop and tool making and so forth. So even with evil motives, prideful arrogance, good things happen even in that city. Jump a few pages ahead in, your, in a book of Genesis. You get to chapter 11 and you hear about the Tower of Babel. But let me read just before that and into that. Chapter 10 talks about what, what refers to the table of nations. What happens between, from the time of the flood to, to uh, Genesis 10 is that human beings start to grow and multiply. The, the, the covenant that was established with Adam and Eve is, re, is, is uh, restated, replit, you know, and Noah... Uh, it, kind of fulfills that and, and his descendants. And human beings start to grow and prosper and, and multiply again. And as that happens, as they're spreading out, different tribes, different nations develop. So you hear about all that. So chapter 10, verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. <clears throat> so cultures, tribes are being formed. Different peoples are being established. And God intends that to happen and spreads them out so that it will continue to happen. What happens in Genesis 11? Now the whole, the, now the whole word had one language and a common speech. 
As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. That's where Babylon is going to be in, in later times. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks to make them thor- bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and ta- tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. All these people in this plain of Shinar decide, you know, we like who we are. We like where we are. We don't want to scatter anymore. We want to be with people just like us. We want to grow here. So we're going to build a city here. And we're going to do this to make a name for ourselves. We're going to do it for our own glory, our own fame, our own honor, honor, our own purpose. And we're going to build a temple that reaches up to the heavens and show God that he's not that big, that much above us anyway. All that kind of stuff's going on. It's a prideful arrogance and egoism and I would say ethnocentrism that brings them together. They don't want to be who God wants them to be. They don't want to become who God wants to become. They don't want to obey what God tells them to do. They don't want to do God's purpose in the earth. You know, when people do that, when they just want to hold on to their own power and privilege and just be around people like them, what ends up happening is that people, other people get rejected, they get hurt, they get destroyed. They're exploited instead of being protected. When they do that, when they turn their worship inward instead of outward to God, it becomes evil and corrupt, idolatrous. When people build the culture, even though there may be good things in that culture, when they build the culture in defiance of God, that culture is used to oppress others, to use them, to manipulate them, to oppress them. to control them, to enslave them. And we have a whole history in our world and even in our country of that kind of stuff happening, continuing to happen. Part of what the Bible teaches about the city is that the city is a battleground. In every earthly city, there's a struggle going on. There's a spiritual battle that erupts into a flesh and blood battle, if you will. 
there are two kingdoms present. Two cities, if you will, vying for control. There's the city of God, represented in, in a kind of archetypal form, in kind of a cosmic sense, by, the, by Jerusalem. And there's a city of the devil, city of Satan, city of man, slash, depending on how you think of it, represented archetypically by Babylon. Babylon the Great. Now, they have two very different loves. Augustine in his book, City of God, actually there are 22 books, but one piece, um, talks about two cities with two very different loves. There's a love of human pride and achievement and ethnicity and so forth, and there's a love for God. And those two loves take you in very different directions. But one of the things that's true is that you can separate them in terms of a kind of archetypical sense, a cosmic sense, big sense, symbolic sense. But the truth is in every human being and in every city, there are actually two cities present. There are elements of the city of God in us and elements of the city of Babylon and elements of the city of Satan. And they're at war. In, in each human being in each city, there are two different drives at war. They're fighting for control. And you see that in so many ways. So, in our city, for example, Worcester, you see that we are, we've been a city that welcomes refugees. Worcester has more refugees than any city in New England. We welcome them. But at the same time, we don't always treat them well. We're a city that has people from at least 85, 90 different nations. But some are more privileged than others in our city. We see people who have access to all kinds of resources and people who have access to almost none. And at least some of it is because of the color of their skin. We see people made in the image of God treated like they like they are just stuff to use and exploit I want to go back to Genesis again Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, so Genesis starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 says, the earth was formless and empty. Now what does that mean, formless and empty? The phrase, the Hebrew phrase is tohu vabohu. That phrase, that, that word tohu, formless, um, 
it shows up again in Isaiah 45, 12 and a number of other places in the Old Testament. Here's Isaiah 45, 12. You, meaning God, God did not create it, the, meaning, meaning the land, to be empty, but to inhabit it. The idea behind formless and empty, I think, in Genesis verse 1, verse 2, is that it was formless and empty in the sense that no human beings lived in it. And what happens in the rest of Genesis 1 is that God prepares the land so that it's habitable, inhabitable by human beings, so that it becomes a place where human beings can flourish. So when God does things, when he uh, separates the, the, the dry land from the waters, when he does all this stuff and he says it's good, why is it good? It's good because it makes the land habitable. It makes it a place where human beings can live and grow and flourish. That's what makes it good. Because it's good because it serves God's global eternal intent. Intent. Why did God create the garden? Well, you see what's going on there. Again, I've mentioned that we have unhindered access to God. Intimate fellowship with him, human beings do. It's a place where all needs are met because they have everything that they need. And it's also a place where their creativity can be unleashed in a way that reflects God's character and purpose. So, Genesis 1 Verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the, in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, how do we read that? Some people read this text or see this text and they think that what it means is we can do whatever we want. The human beings can do whatever they want on the earth. It's just theirs to use. But if you read it in the context in which it's placed, the first thing we're told is that we're made in the image of God. In the likeness of God, he made them. Image and likeness of God. What that means is that we were called, we were made, we were intended by God from the, from the beginning to reflect his character and his purpose so that when people saw us, they saw something of God. We were made to accomplish God's purpose. We are made to cultivate 
his creation. We were asked to be, called to be God's ambassadors, God's regents in the world, accomplishing his purpose. So we were never made to do whatever, called to do whatever we want with the earth. We were made to do what God wants us to do with it. What God wants us to do with it. And what God wanted to do with the earth, what you see God doing in Genesis 1, is that God bringing order and beauty to the creation. Using the raw materials of his creation and ordering it in such a way that human beings, all human beings, could flourish. And when we use the, the resources of the earth, when we use the time and energy and gifts and talents and abilities that God gives us for our own sake, when we hoard all of that for ourselves, we are denying God's call to be his regions bringing flourishing to the earth and to the people of the earth. Let me try to say this and try to summarize this. What is God doing in Genesis 1? He's forming the land. He's preparing it to be filled by humankind. He's bringing order out of chaos. He's separating, he's separating light from darkness, waters, from, waters above from waters below, day from night, woman from man. And each time he does that, each time he does a segment of that, he says it's, very, it's good. It's good. And what he creates is this extraordinary, what he, it's got this extraordinary variety and diversity. You know, you know, I mean, thousands of flowers and, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of birds and all of these insects and all this cool stuff. You know, there's part of the DNA of all this stuff, if you will, part of the, the, the genetic... Um, Part of what God put in all of this allows for this extraordinary, beautiful diversity. And, it's when, and the more of the diversity you see, the more you appreciate the grandeur, the majesty, the wisdom, the awesomeness, if you will, of God. That awesomeness, that grandeur, that diversity of God gets expressed in human beings as well. So you have so many different cultures, so many ethnicities. It's all part of the beauty of God being displayed. And God does all that because he wants to make a place that's good for human beings to flourish and accomplish his purposes. He calls us into that same kind of work. That's what it means for us to be his regents. We continue the work that God began. Just like in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 says, In the beginning, most excellent Theophilus, I told you about all the work that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. And what the book of Acts is about is what the church continues to do and teach in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. In the same way that Acts 
is a display of God's people continuing Jesus' work. The book of the Bible is an expression of what God's people are supposed to do in continuing his work of creation in Genesis 1. They all come together. Many people flee the city because they think it's a place that's just dark and dirty and godless and evil. They abandon the city. And there is, that in, there is some of that in the city. But that's not all that's in the city. What's in the city are people who God created. What's in the city is God's presence. God has never abandoned the city. What God wants in the city is the people of God who don't abandon the city because he wants to restore the city to display his glory and to allow, to promote human flourishing. Years ago, probably 30 years ago, I remember hearing a talk by Gordon MacDonald, who was a prominent uh, pastor at the time and, and uh, has written quite a few books and so forth. But I don't remember the context of his talk, but it was at about the time that he wrote his book, Ordering Your Private World. And he mentioned that... Um, that... He's, he developed this habit whenever he'd go into a public restroom, before he left it, he'd clean it up. He'd kind of clean off the counter, he'd take a you know, paper towel, clean off the counter, he'd take up the trash that was flowing out of the trash, and he'd, and he'd just clean up the bathroom. And it was his way of reminding himself that he was put in the world by God to make the world better than he found it. He was called, if you take seriously the idea of being God's cultural gardeners, we develop the earth. We develop, we use our gifts and talents and abilities to develop what the, the environment that God has put us in to make it better. And he would do that as a discipline to remind him that's what his whole life is about. And when I heard him say that, I said, you know, that makes sense. So I've, been do, I've started doing that. So for the last 30 years, I clean bathrooms where I go. As a small reminder that this is what God wants me to do with the totality of my life. He's called me, he's called us to make the world better than when we found it. To make our environment, to make our neighborhood, to make our school, to make our city, to make our family, make our street, to make our church better than what we, the way we found it. Now we know that though there is a battle raging between, if you will, the city of God and the city of Satan, we know that in the end, the city of God will emerge. There will be a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And it's going to be glorious. But in this in-between time, The call of God for us is to display the glory of his kingdom, of his city, wherever we are, and to do it together so that people experience God's goodness, come into his family, 
enter into his kingdom and do the good he's called us to do in his name. Cornelius Planiga, a theologian, uh, in his book, A a Breviary of Sin, not the way it used to be, not the way it's supposed to be, has this little comment on what God wants to do, what God is going to do. He's going to bring shalom to the world. This is what he says. If I can find it. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. God has given us a picture of the way things ought to be. He holds it before us as a vision. And he says, you go and try to make this, this shalom. You try to, you go out into your world and be agents of shalom. Can you imagine anything more worth doing than that? Is there anything more worth doing than that, being agents of shalom in the world, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our, in our world? Agents of shalom in the name of Jesus. I have an invitation for you. Three parts to it. For the last few weeks, I've been kind of taking, kind of walking the streets of this neighborhood, the neighborhood around our church. For for those of you who don't know, we moved into this building September 20th. This is a new neighborhood for us that we think God brought us to because he wants to make a difference in this neighborhood and contribute to the flourishing of this neighborhood. So part of what I've been doing is kind of walking the streets, just kind of walking slowly and kind of watching and listening, hearing, trying to see what's there and asking God to show me what he wants me to see. I'd like to invite you into that. I'd like to invite you. We're doing this series on Ezra and Nehemiah because we and trying to apply it, we will be trying to apply it to our context, our, our neighborhood and our city. But over the next number of weeks, next three months, say, maybe once a week, maybe on a Sunday before our church or after, after our worship service, take, take a few minutes, pick a street, and just want to walk up the street and walk back down and just kind of pray, Lord, show me what, what this, what's going on here. Help me to see this street the way you see it. Help me to notice what you want me to notice. Help me to hear what you want me to hear. Help me to feel what you want me to to feel. I'd like to ask you to do that and do a different street each week. 
And what I'd like you to do is, after you do that, jot it down somewhere so you don't lose it, you don't forget it. And do that week after week after week over the next three months and see what God starts to put together in your head, in your soul, in your heart. Do it with other people and then talk about it with one another. Let's walk up this street. And then talk about what you experienced together. And what I'd really love too is if every week when you did that, you just talk to me or shoot me an email and say, I walked up Cooper Street, say, uh, and uh, I saw this. And uh, this is what God's, this is what kind of the way it made me feel. And I wonder if God is trying to say this to me. I'd, I'd love for if you just kind of let me know, week baby, what it was that you heard, saw, experienced, what you prayed, and maybe what kind of new ideas, thoughts, visions even God may be planting in you. And let's see if we can put all of that together as a church. And allow God to speak to us that way. So I'm inviting you to do this every week, different, different street every week for the next three months. And let's see what God does with that. Let's see what God does with that in us. What God does with that through us. What God does with that that enables us to be agents of shalom, acting in the name of Jesus for the good of our neighborhood and the honor of God's name. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who is good. Thank you, Lord, that all of creation is an overflow of your love and generosity. Thank you that we are recipients of love unfathomable, profound and unending. And thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be like you in character and in purpose and you've given us a way to do that because you've given us gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities and experiences that we can put into play. Lord, help us to fulfill the call you've placed upon our lives individually and corporately. Help us, Lord, to to, uh, become embedded in our new neighborhood. Help us to embrace what you embrace and let go of what you uh, despise. Lord, we ask that you would help us to end each day and look back on it and say, this is good. This was good. We did good. Others were helped because of this day. Lord, help us to be people who bring flourishing wherever we are. Beauty and goodness and love and peace and wholeness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.